Ron has continued to lie because he's losing. I'm sick of hearing about these polls. Nikki is corrupt. I love all the attention, fellas. Thank you for that. We're now 25 minutes into this debate, and he has insulted Nikki Haley's basic intelligence. Not her positions, her basic intelligence. She doesn't know regions. She wouldn't be able to find something on a map that his three-year-old could find. This is a smart, accomplished woman. You should stop insulting. We need a strategy of denial so that we're deterring G's ambition. What biological boys shouldn't be playing in girls' sports. Folks like these three guys on the stage make it seem like his conduct is acceptable. Let me make it clear. His conduct is unacceptable. He's unfit. You do this at every debate. You go out on the stump and you say something. All of us see it on video. We confront you on the debate stage. You say you didn't say it, and then you back away. And I want to say what? No, I'm not done yet. Well, this is now look. fourth debate that you would be voted in the first 20 minutes as the most obnoxious blowhard in America. Welcome to Politics is Everything, where we try hard not to be the most obnoxious blowhards in America. I'm Kara Ongwele. I'm Kyle Kondik, and maybe I'm on the list, but hopefully not at the top. Kyle, we are recording this the day after the December 6th Republican primary debate, which was held in Tuscaloosa. And the Iowa caucuses are just six weeks away. It seems that Nikki Haley has been having her having a moment, especially in the media. She also seemed to do well again in the debate last night. Both Ron DeSantis and Vivek Ramaswamy were very focused on attacking her, sometimes in very nasty ways. And Chris Christie even made an alliance with her during the debate. What is your takeaways about the race for number two? Yeah, I think pretty clearly the other candidates on the stage, and of course, it was a fairly small debate stage with four candidates. And I would argue that at this point, there really should be three, although functionally just two, because Donald Trump's not participating. But Taylor and DeSantis is the only only real plausible challengers to Trump at this point. But the other candidates were treating Haley as someone who's rising as she's been. She She's arguably supplanted DeSantis as, as Trump's top top challenger. Sort of depends on the state you look at. I think DeSantis is still ahead of her in Iowa, but Haley is better positioned in New Hampshire and South Carolina based on the polls. The national polls are relatively close. DeSantis still up a little bit. The trajectories are, are the striking thing in that DeSantis has been losing steam for months and Haley's been gradually gaining. But of course, they're so far behind Trump anyway that it, it's, it, it may just you know, may not even be all that consequential to what's going on right now. But I thought, I th- think Haley has generally been acquitting herself pretty well. She is, I think, providing at least something to maybe Republicans who are a little bit closer to the center and maybe aren't quite as MAGA-ish as the rest of the party is. Although really the problem for Haley is that's not the kind of group that you can, that you could just ride to primary victory with. You need to really cut more into the voters who are supporting Trump, and even to to much lesser extent, the voters who are supporting Ron DeSantis. And this is where she's, she she may have a something of a floor at this point, but I don't know how high her ceiling is. And again, we're struggling to. We're, it's a race in which, in these debates, you have these. It's a contest between these people who are f- way behind the front runner. I think we maybe talked about this earlier in this the election season that it's possible that these will be some of the least important and least impactful primary debates in sort of modern history, just because. The leading candidate is not part of it. Now, if one of these candidates actually starts to draw blood against Trump and performs well in some of the early primary states, then maybe they will have been important. But 
It's also possible that Trump will just roll to victory, at which point this was all just a sideshow. Most of the debates are still largely focused on all of these candidates who are so far behind Trump actually attacking each other and going after each other rather than even going after Trump himself. We did see a moment in the debate last night where Chris Christie really tried to press Ron DeSantis to actually answer a question about whether Donald Trump was in a state of mind where he could be president. And even we're still seeing an inability of the candidates to really, other than Chris Christie, really, to go after Trump. They find ways in which they can criticize Trump generally along kind of ways in which they think that Trump has diverged from the sort of standard Republican line on like spending or those sorts of things. And DeSantis was suggesting that Trump is, you know, basically too old to be president, but he did it in a, a soft way, certainly softer than how Republicans would go after Biden for his age. But of course, there's party there that, that makes sense. But but yeah, there's definitely some punch pulling, and it's in part because Trump is such a big lead that these candidates are trying, they're trying to do this thing where they they're trying to attract Trump's voters without being too hard on Trump to repel those people. And it's just this very difficult dance. And you see it in the the polling, which is that Trump is still this dominant, dominant figure within the party. And we've seen what's happened to people who've been more critical of Trump. They generally become pretty unpopular within the party. One of the questions directed at Chris Christie was just about how unpopular he is within the Republican Party. He has some constituency in New Hampshire, mainly among moderates or even independent voters who may cross over to vote in that primary. But he doesn't really have a bigger constituency within the party, and his criticism of Trump is part of the reason why. It's interesting to me, he's polling at about 11% in New Hampshire, and I think there's been some questions about, does he withdraw relatively soon and now give Haley an endorsement, and would that help her then in New Hampshire? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it would help her in New Hampshire. Uh, in fact, like, I could see a scenario where Haley wins New Hampshire. I would not predict it, obviously, based on what the polls say right now, but the, the polls could change quite a lot. And it could be akin to like when John McCain beat George Bush in New Hampshire in 2000, that maybe Trump wins Iowa and is dominating nationally. And the New Hampshire voters maybe want to pump the brakes on Trump a little bit. There could very well be a lot of independents and Democrats who cross over to vote in New Hampshire. Of course, Joe Biden is not going to be on the ballot in New Hampshire because the, the, the the Democratic National Committee wanted New Hampshire to, to vote later. New Hampshire is preserving its traditional spot. It's the first primary contest with the Iowa caucus, at least on the Republican side, remaining the first overall contest. But the, the thing is, where would, even if Haley were to win New Hampshire, which is, it is to be clear, a stretch based on the numbers, yes, then she'd go to South Carolina at her home state. The South Carolina electorate is much, I'd say, probably Trumpier than the New Hampshire one is. So it's not even clear to me she'd have a home field advantage. Part of what's blocking Haley from getting into, let's say, the 30s in New Hampshire as opposed to being in the, the teens or the 20s is that Christie is naturally taking some of the voters who might otherwise gravitate toward Haley. Christie said some nice things about Haley last night. Maybe Christie would get out, and that probably would help Haley to a certain degree. But again, Trump is still at, even in that state, in, in, in the 40s and, and well ahead of everyone. And I want to get into a little bit more about some of the work that you did this week, just analyzing polls and the breakdown between college and non-college voters. Um, but there is also a new poll out from Monmouth University that shows how increasingly Republican voters um, would just like to see uh, Trump as the nominee when they're asked in an open-ended question 
53% name Trump just off the top of their head. And that has been on the rise over the last year when it was at just 26%. So again, pointing out that Trump is, you know, at the forefront, not just in the Monmouth poll, but nationally in in the aggregate polling. This is all just everything that we're discussing in terms of the other candidates are it may just be a sideshow, although things could happen with the indictments or some other unforeseen circumstance in which all of this could have been a useful exercise. But I wonder if you could talk just a little bit more about what you found in terms of the breakdown of college versus non-college voters and support for Nikki Haley and Donald Trump. Yeah, what we saw, what we've seen with Trump, and this goes back to 2016, is that to the extent there's resistance to him in the Republican Party, it comes more from voters who have a four-year college degree as opposed to those who don't. And we saw, we've seen that in the kind of realignment of American politics since Trump came on the scene and that Democrats have gained with college-educated voters and lost ground with voters who don't have a four-year degree. And to, again, you, you could see this in like exit polls from 2016 that Trump was doing better with non-college voters, college voters. So it's this two sides of the coin of the Republican Party that, that I've just been monitoring over the years. And as the year has progressed, Trump has dominated with the non-college vote in Republican primary polling and done perfectly fine with the college vote in order to maintain a, a big lead. So when you look at some of the, the like the early state polls and the national polls, Trump's lead with non-college voters is bigger than it is with Republicans overall. And his lead with college voters is then smaller than what it is overall, although he's usually still leading with that group. Or there have been some polls where he's been like tied with Haley with that group in, in, in certain states, but it's not enough to threaten his lofty perch within the party. And another piece of this is that if you look at the, the exit polls from 2016, they suggest an electorate in a lot of the states that was basically like 50-50 split between college-educated voters and non-college voters. But there's a kind of long history of the exit poll of exit polls overstating the education level of the electorate. I think that was particularly a problem pre pre Trump or even in 2016 when differences among education level weren't quite as important in terms of voting. But the real Republican electorate, you're going to have more non college voters than college voters, just like you have in the the overall general electorate. I go through some of that in the piece. But the bottom line is that Trump is doing if you split the college vote and the non college vote. First of all, in almost every place, if not every place, the non-college vote is going to be bigger in a Republican primary and in a general electorate. And the non-college vote is more pro-Trump. And the college vote is softer on Trump, but he's doing perfectly fine amongst that group to win the nomination. If you're going to see a real jailbreak away from Trump, I think you'd first see it in the college-educated vote, given that group has been a little softer for him. And yet, as of now, he's doing perfectly fine. That's something to monitor. And Haley naturally has more appeal to those voters. We see that in the polls as well, that she does much better with college voters than she does with non-college voters. But it, that's why I say maybe she doesn't have as, might, as, as high of a ceiling, because even if she starts to consolidate the college group, if she's not making inroads with the non-college group, there's only so far she can go. I want to switch gears a little bit with you and talk about some congressional retirements and expulsions and what that may mean for both this session and perhaps even the next. And as we look in, as we look to the 2024 elections, last Friday, the House of Representatives voted to expel Republican Representative George Santos of New York after a blistering ethics report on his conduct heightened lawmakers' concerns about many of the scandals that George Santos was involved in. 
Santos is just the sixth member in Congress's history to be ousted by his colleagues and just the third since the Civil War. And then flash forward a few days to this week, we had former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy announce his retirement on December 6th, as did Representative Patrick McHenry from North Carolina, who was also a colleague of McCarthy's and served temporarily as House Speaker. So in total, over the last couple of weeks, this brings us up to about 40 lawmakers who have said that they're not going to seek re-election in the 2024 election. This is actually a little bit higher than average announcements for this time relative to the election cycle. Normally, we would would we see most announcements come after the new year. So this could indicate that we're going to have a higher than average uh, class of retirements for 2024. In the short term, this also means that we have a, an even slimmer, the Re- Republicans have an even slimmer majority in Congress, which can make lawmaking even more challenging than it already is. How are you thinking about the retirements in terms of both lawmaking next year, but also how it may affect the 2024 elections? Uh, Most of these members are retiring from safe seats, and it doesn't necessarily affect the general election calculus for next year. Although to the extent that there are going to be open seats in uh, competitive districts, the Democrats are defending more of them. There there are four open, open seats that that are democratic controlled that we list in either the toss-up or leans democratic column the only open seat that we list as toss-up or leans republicans most competitive seats is the santos seat new york three and of course there'll be a special election there in february and of course that's not a damaging retirement that's because i guess it's damaging in the sense that republicans have to defend it in a special election as opposed to the general election and so they might lose it before the general election but it's not like Santos was a was a strong incumbent who was favored to win re-election if, if you're going to run for um, re-election. And, and so you're also losing some institutional heft on the Republican side. It is interesting that like someone like Patrick McHenry, who got elected at a very young age to the House and so has been in Congress for, for a fairly long time, even though he's not even 50 yet, he is someone who's evolved into someone who was maybe not as much of a firebrand as, as when he started. But it stands to reason he'll be, he probably will be replaced by someone who is maybe, maybe a little bit more anti-establishment than he is, at least as he, as he currently serves. We'll see about who ends up replacing Kevin McCarthy. But there's, there's been a steady trickle of over the past several cycles of what you'd consider to be kind of institutionalist Republicans. Like I put like Mitt Romney in that camp, who's a re, you know, retiring from Utah. And they're probably going to be replaced by people who are maybe. Maybe not Trump-like necessarily, but maybe closer to to like where Donald Trump is and where the where a lot of other Republicans are than maybe to, to to the people who they're replacing. So that may matter for trying to govern the chamber. We've also seen this dynamic on the Republican side where they've had trouble even electing a leader and then supporting that person in the speaker vote on the floor. And so it might just be there might just be even more dissent within the Republican Party, and, and it might even be harder to govern the, just the internal dynamics of the House Republican conference. But again, in a general election sense, to the extent that vacancies matter for next November, it's the Democrats who are hurt a little bit more because again, they're they just have a few more openings in legitimately competitive seats. Competency is not as important as it used to be, but some of these members who are not running again, Abigail Spanberger in Virginia. Alyssa Slotkin in in Michigan, for example, these are pretty strong incumbents who 
it's going to be hard to find someone who is as good of a fundraiser, as good of a candidate as they are. Doesn't mean Democrats can't hold those those competitive seats, but I'm sure House Democrats would rather have those members running again than not. I think in short, the retirements are going to be more likely to exacerbate a lot of the challenges facing Congress. But to your point about who might be elected on the Republican side, historically, the research shows that when new members come in, they're more likely to stick with their fellow party members. And so that will be interesting to see if there is divergence, especially on the Republican side, people who might be more anti-establishment if they're elected into those seats to push back against the establishment wings, the more established elements of the party or not. But also, I think something that also from the research, we know that new members are also less inclined to reach across the aisle. And again, we're likely to just see greater challenges in terms of lawmaking, not any sort of reprieve from what we've seen. Yeah. And and look, I think you could individual members retire for all sorts of different reasons and only they know why they retire and what their public statements are doesn't necessarily comport with what their internal thinking may have been. And people may, obviously some people run for higher office. Some people take, they take a, they take a different job. We've got a couple, we've got a Democrat, Brian Higgins of New York and Republican Bill Johnson of Ohio retiring to take different or resigning early next year to take different jobs. But I got to think that just the the upheaval in the House has got to be playing at least some role in this decent sized number of retirements. One other just timing factor that might be playing a role here is that because of some of the primaries are, are earlier than they usually are. So in a presidential year, California's voting on Super Tuesday and they're having all of their, their primary contests or their, their top two primaries on that date. In other years where there's not a presidential race, the California primaries is June. Uh, so the filing deadline's coming up. So the filing deadline obviously imposes a uh, Im- Im- imposes a deadline for these members to decide whether they're running or not. So maybe that has pushed some of these retirements a little bit earlier in the cycle. So maybe we don't get quite as many as we might expect at the after the holidays. But the holidays is also a, just a time for people to I think to reflect and figure out if they want to do this or not. So I'm sure we'll see more retirements over the over the course of the next couple of months anyway. So, Kyle, one final topic to take up today is the new congressional map in Georgia, which our colleague Miles Coleman wrote about in the Crystal Ball. This, uh, the new congressional map comes in the wake of the Supreme Court's Allen versus Milligan ruling. This is another one of the trickle down effects from earlier this year. In the case of Georgia, a federal judge that was appointed by President Obama, Steve Jones, sided with civil rights groups in a case that challenged Georgia's congressional and legislative maps. And the ju- and Judge Jones ordered an additional black majority seat to be drawn west of Atlanta. The medial the remedial map was drawn by Republicans, and it's it is not what Democrats had hoped for. It basically just reshuffles the lines of districts where Democrats, most of the Republican districts, are located south of the state capitol. They're in largely rural areas, and those remained un- untouched. There is also a, a District 2, which is held by Representative Sanford Bishop. It is the only district that was unaltered in the new map. What should we be taking away from this remedial map and what may happen? Will it weave its way through the courts? And could that alter any outcomes in the state of Georgia? The kind of racial redistricting jurisprudence I, I find to be like confusing to understand and explain. And it, it is sometimes changing. Of course, that Allen v. Milligan 
basically upheld the Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, and which sort of lays out some stipulations as to when majority-minority districts should be created. And the federal judge who you know ruled against the Georgia map said, hey, I want you should create this new majority black seat, but you should do it in such a way that you're not eliminating majority minority or minority coalition district elsewhere. But it's not clear that other higher courts that are going to be probably more conservative are necessarily going to agree with that logic. And so what Georgia Republicans did in the US House is they they believe that they could pass a map that changes the districts and creates this new majority black seat, but still allows them to maintain a 9-5 advantage in the overall Georgia House delegation. And my guess is that this map will stand up over as we get to appeals later on, because you're, I think, I don't think that it was, it was even somewhat of a surprise that Alan V. Milligan turned out the way it was. There was a possibility that the Supreme Court might effectively gut that, which would allow potentially for some majority minority seats to be eliminated or at least not for, forced to be created. But I, I just don't, I just don't know if the, these higher courts are going to are going to go along with with forcing Georgia to not just create an additional black seat, but also to to effectively have to create an extra democratic seat. And th- again, this is why it's challenging, and also why when we do our ratings, we we generally wait until we think the cake is baked in terms of all of the judicial actions. Like we're still waiting on Louisiana, for instance, which probably is going to have to create a new democratic leaning seat, a second seat, just like Alabama had to do. But we're waiting to see what actually happens there. And uh, there's just a lot of legal wrangling going on out there. New York State is one. This is, that doesn't have anything to do with racial redistricting. There's a possibility that that might get redrawn. And at the end of the day, the Democrats might be able to do a, a form of a gerrymander there like they tried to do before the courts, the state courts threw it out in 2022. So there's still a lot of moving pieces here. But bottom line in Georgia, is, again, my expectation is that It's 9-5 Republican now, and I think that's probably what it'll end up being in 2024 as well. Kyle, thank you so much, as always, for your excellent analyses and insights. It's great talking with you. Thanks, Kara. Listeners, you can find links to the new analyses on Larry Sabato's Crystal Ball in the episode notes. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me, Kara Ong Whitley. You can learn more about the Center for Politics and its work to strengthen democracy on our website at centerforpolitics.org. You can also engage with us on social media at Center Number Four Politics. We welcome your suggestions and questions for future episodes. Thanks so much for tuning in. Until next time. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.